Welcome to the Business Gorillas Podcast, where the biggest, baddest, and most fearless business owners pull the curtains back and reveal their most tightly guarded secrets and strategies. With your host, serial entrepreneur and marketing visionary, Josh Rosenberg. Buckle up. It's time to get started. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Rosenberg. You're here with me for another Business Gorillas Podcast. Today, my guest is an executive coach who I'm just starting to get to know, who seems like uh, he's been around for quite a while doing this. Uh, his name is Stephen Smith, coming to me uh, here all the way from Orange County, California. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great, Josh. Thanks for having me on today. Great, great. Well, thank you for being here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your coaching business and who you help and how you got started in this? Sure, absolutely. Um, I started coaching in 2008, uh, right after I left my, my corporate role in uh, sales, marketing, logistics uh, for consumer products. I did that for about 30 years, four different companies. 2008 comes along and I just realized I was kind of tired of it. Travel was really getting to me. And I'd always had this burning desire ever since I was nine years old that I was going to have my own business one day. I just didn't know what it was going to be or when it was going to show up. So 2008 was kind of the entry point for that. Uh, I was introduced to coaching. Uh, I actually bought a franchise when I first started. It was a very young company. I fell in love with their methodology. They just weren't old enough to be able to sustain themselves. And they went out of business in March of 2011. And that's when I kind of offboarded and designed the coaching company that I have today. And it's been very successful. And um, I try to keep things really simple. I do individual coaching. I work with people that own businesses or operate other people's businesses. So it could be a franchise. Um, or I work with executives in larger companies who are responsible for either specific locations or specific departments or something at the C-level. Um, the only thing that I have diff I, I've, I've kind of diverted off over the last couple of years is I've gotten a lot of calls for management team training. Companies have got you know, new generations of people filling their management ranks. And they're just starting to see that there's a lot of uh, deficiency in skill set and operating procedure and things like that. So that's what I focus on. Uh, I'm kind of business agnostic. Um, you know, I, I pretty much I have conversations with people to determine if they have something I can actually help them with. But once we get over that, then you know we kind of move into the whole process, and usually turns out very well for them. So, you know, 15 years later, I'm very thankful with what I'm doing. Uh, I've been blessed in terms of the number of clients I've been able to work with, and that's kind of why I like to get on these shows because it gives me a chance to kind of widen my audience a bit. Absolutely. And you said uh, you got into this, your first venture in 2008. That was an uh, economic crisis. That was a housing crisis when all the um, subprime mortgages sort of came due and uh, the banks needed to be bailed out and a lot of people were hurting and stuff. And I noticed uh, that was right around the time that a lot of people just decided that they were going to go off on their own and start their own businesses. Uh, yes. So, yeah, you, you know, you, you were probably swept up in that. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know what the funny thing about that was? You're right. I met, literally met dozens and dozens of people who had very similar backgrounds to me, but I also saw a lot of catastrophe during the kind of 2008, 2009, 2010 period uh, where people were jumping into things that just sounded good to them and they just weren't sustainable. Um, and so, yeah, nobody knew what was coming. I mean, I started coaching in August of 2008. I had no idea 
what was going to hit me uh, or, or, or much of the community I was trying to serve. And the one thing I learned from the franchise that I bought into, because they were big in mindset, uh, that, you know, if this is what you love, is this what you think your future is all about? Do not quit. You know, just refuse to participate in the recession. And, uh, and so I tried my best to kind of follow that mantra. And, and uh, over time, as I look back, I think it served me well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you said that you always knew you were going to go into business for yourself. Was that your very first venture or were you like most people and you had like a lemonade stand or paper out as a kid? Oh. Or did you have little jobs, you know, as you were, you know, in school growing up, college or what? All right. So you're going to love this. At, at nine years old, and of course, you know, this we're talking way back in, in a whole other generation of people. Um, we were really big into trying to make money, figuring out what we could do to make money, you know, because back then, you know, you, you got 50 cents a week allowance, you know, so it kind of gives you an idea of economically where things were at that time. And I can remember playing with my friends across the street. And one day as I was leaving their backyard, I saw the woman next door kind of lugging these big piles of newspapers that she had bundled up and she was stacking them out in her backyard. And of course, you know, from the rain and everything, these things were all kind of wet and nasty looking. And so I walked over to her and I said, why are you putting all this stuff out here? And she goes, the trash people won't take it. And so I went back home and I started thinking, I thought, you know what, I'm going to get into the newspaper recycling business. So I went around the neighborhood every couple of weeks and collected people's old newspapers, magazines. And then my mom would take me to the local recycling place, which was probably about four or five miles away from the house. And they'd weigh the car going in, we'd dump everything off, they'd weigh the car going out and they'd pay you the difference. And so all of a sudden I found myself making eight to 10 times the amount of the, of the allowance I was getting every week. So I thought, oh, there's something to this. You know, I gotta figure out more ways to make money. And that was kind of the bug that I got at a very, very early age where I didn't know anything. I didn't know QuickBooks. I didn't know how to write checks. All I knew was there was people out there that had, they had need of services. And if I could figure out how to fill it, maybe I'd make money doing it. Absolutely. And you didn't realize it at the time because you were too young, but most young entrepreneurs, what they're actually doing is saying, hey, this person's got a problem. They can either continue to do it themselves or they can save themselves the time and the energy and just pay me a little bit of money to do it for them. That's how a lot Absolutely. of people get started with mowing lawns or right. shoveling right. snow or any of that. Absolutely. Um, and of course, you don't know how to how to charge people for those services. So you're usually just going to take what you're given. But so long as it's more than what you were originally going to get for, you know, for your allowance, you're happy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest the biggest money maker I had, and I was it was I did it in junior high. Uh, I lived back in the Washington, D.C. area and I got a paper route. And um, at one point I was making a little over 100 bucks a month. And this was back in <laughs> this was back in the late 60s, early 70s, where the minimum wage was a dollar sixty five an hour. And so I'm spending two hours every morning walking about a two mile radius around this community we lived in serving papers. And then you have to go collect at the end of the month. But I was making about a hundred bucks a month. I, I, that was enough where I could, I went out and bought my own first TV. You know, my mom comes in my bedroom one day and I'm watching this TV and she says, where did you get that? And I said, well, I went down to the, I went down to the TV store and bought it. <laughs> and she was a little perturbed so, about that because I didn't ask her for it. But uh, you know, it just gave you the sense of independence when you have money to spend. So a hundred dollars a week, 
that's or a hundred dollars a month rather it's 25 dollars a week right. you're spending two hours so it's basically 12 50 an hour you're making almost 10 times the minimum wage <laughs> right yes and yeah, it wasn't a glamorous was job by any means but no. any adult could do the same thing and be making the same kind of money 10 times the minimum wage that's that's ridiculous I know, that, I know, but you it know, was all, it, look, it's all based on you. Look, you get a certain portion where I made the money was on the tips. And the thing I figured out early on was everybody that you served a paper to had some little idiosyncrasy that they wanted you to remember. Like they didn't want you to put the newspaper on the step. They wanted you to put it inside the door or, or some behind a bush or everybody had these little weird things. And if you could remember that and do it consistently, they would tip you extra just because you remembered. <laughs> so I kind of figured early on, customer service pays money. Oh, absolutely. Um, you see this a lot with, uh, sorry, breaking up. So I'm just going to turn off my video. Um, but you see this a lot with uh, small mom and shop businesses, like um, coffee shop, you know, there's a, a coffee shop right near me where there's a little tip jar and they say the best lovers leave the biggest tips. And oh, that's fuck. fantastic. Because now people are more motivated to drop in a $5 bill there than, you know, a, a dollar or 50 cents or whatever. Well, I don't know about you. And, and I'm sure this is different in every area that people live in, but when the pandemic hit, restaurants, you know, they were hit pretty hard. Some other businesses just didn't operate. But people just became extraordinarily benevolent in terms of trying to help the restaurant or the business they would go to stay afloat. So they just got used to giving them extra tips, you know, tipping them way more than normal because kind of the times kind of required it. And now as we've moved out of the, uh, the pandemic and people are, at least my area, kind of back to normal, um, you find that some of these businesses have kind of developed an entitlement mentality and they're not really providing extraordinary service, but they still want the 20% tip. And so I find sometimes a little torn between is this business really running well and deserving of that? Or have they just become in that mindset where if you walk in and order something at the counter, you should be paying them 20% just for the benefit. Oh yeah. I I've started carrying cash around because which I, I normally would always pay with my card, but I start carrying cash because when I see that their POS machine is that little uh, iPad tablet thing right. and they're going to spin that thing around in my direction, it's going to be asking me for a tip. Right. Yes. And I, I absolutely hate that. I, I tip very well when I go to a restaurant or to a bar or something. If I go to the barber shop, anywhere that you would normally tip, I pay well, but when I know that the person's making hourly and they're just adding this on as an additional fee, I don't want to support that. Right. Same I like uh, when you order food, you know, Grubhub or Uber Eats or any of these. And not only do they mark up the, the cost of all the food by a dollar an item, not only are there extra tax on there, but then you've got their convenience fee and their surcharge fee and their travel fee. Oh, and yeah. that's before the, the, the delivery guy. Right. I know. And look, I will tip, I will tip well when people bring their best game to their job. But if they're just phoning it in, then I just see no reason to do that because I just don't, I don't want to reward mediocrity 
And I think businesses a lot tend to fall into that, that bucket of just get through the day, just serve the clients, just collect the money and, and, and we're good for another day. And, and it's sad because those kind of businesses, when you, know, you get a massive disruption in the market, they're the ones that go first. The ones that kind of stay the test of time, they've realized that people can go anywhere to get food, but they wanna to go to a place where the ambiance is great, the experience is good, the people that are serving them really love what they do. That's what people go back to all the time. And it doesn't matter if it's a restaurant, it could be any other kind of business. If you really feel like when you walk in the door, you're the, you're the most valued thing in the room because you're the customer, those are the kind of businesses that prevail. A hundred percent. Absolutely. You know, there's as much as we deal with the large corporate chains, the big box stores like Costco, Walmart, Target, Best Buy, all them. And for a lot of the country, that's really the only option that you have in most places. You don't yeah. have mom and pop restaurants. You've got TGI Fridays and Chili's and all that. You want to go out of your way and support the local family owned business. And you're, a lot of times won't mind paying a couple bucks more because you're supporting a local business. And if they really go out of their way and make sure that you have a great experience, you're going to keep going back there and you're going to tell people to go there. Yes. So um, what is it that you think that you bring to the table when you're working with your clients that kind of helps move the needle for them more than anybody else helps get them that aha moment, the light bulb going off moment that really uh, helps them to, to take their business to the next level. All right. One of the things that I look for almost immediately in the very first conversation is a, le a level of awareness about what they think of the role that they're in. You know, if, if you own the business or if you're a general manager in a little larger company, but you're making most of the decisions, that's where I start. Because what I find over time, and especially if somebody is in a highly competitive industry, and they've been kind of beating around the head and shoulders for a while, they start to get a little numb. And when they get numb, they, they get myopic. They lose the ability to think and see clearly about what's actually going on and what they need to be spending their time doing. So if I can help them gain real clarity about what the value of their role is and what they should be doing and what they should be spending their time on, and most importantly, what should they be delegating off to everybody else that they've hired to, to work in that business so that they can kind of keep an, an exclusive role for their highest and best use. And I can get them to that point of clarity where they, they see it, not just academically listening to me and saying, yeah, it, it makes sense, but they actually see it, what it looks like in their, in their world. When I can get them to that, that's when they now start to take on and willingly own a lot of the strategies and the skills that I will kind of encourage them to look at and figure out how to make work for themselves because now they've cleared their head. Now their head's not full of so much junk that they just, they can't adopt anything else because they're too busy worrying about the next urgency that's knocking on the door. Absolutely. And when I work with clients and I go into their business, if I see that there's one decision maker that controls every aspect of the business that's a huge red flag to me sometimes it can work but i mean you've got sales marketing production operations training the team you've got uh the the numbers side of it one yeah. person cannot be on top of all of that and be an expert at all of that right right so you know maybe you've got some real creative type that also has an mba so 
Now they've got the left and right side of their brain triggering and they're experienced enough to be able to handle this. But nine times out of 10, if you got somebody that's that good, they know how to hire the right people to do the stuff that they're not good at. Well, look, I'm sure you've run into this experience because it's not just unique to me, but people that are the, the engineer, the, the, the designers, the architects of the business that they now have, those are the people that along the way have almost developed this feeling of I'm actually part of the business. I'm connected to the business. You know, in, in Michael Gerber's terms, you know, in, in his e-myth book, they haven't figured out to, how to separate themselves from the entity they've created so that that entity can, can grow and flourish without them smothering it up because we all have limitations. And when I run into those kind of people, those are the ones that I have to really spend a lot of mindset time on upfront. And I'll tell you the kind of businesses those, those tend to be. They tend to be professional service businesses, law firms, CPA practices, engineering companies, people that come to a business with very, very high degrees of academic background, licensing certification. They've spent a lot of years and a lot of money getting to where they are. Sometimes they're the ones that have the most difficulty separating themselves from the rest of the business because they don't think anybody else can do it as well as they do. And so despite all the talent that they've, they've hired and that they're paying for, they still find themselves intentionally going into the weeds and doing stuff for everybody else because they think they're the only ones that can do it. A hundred percent. I love the fact that you mentioned law firms in particular. Um, I've worked at a whole bunch of law firms over the years. And what it, I realized very early on is law school doesn't teach you how to be a lawyer. It teaches you how to research the law, fill out the paperwork, understand certain terms, but it doesn't teach you how to actually work at a law firm, be an associate, be a, a senior level partner, whatever it is. Right. You learn how to be a lawyer after you graduate, when you start working there. And for a lot of attorneys, they have this very altruistic sort of spirit where they want to change the world for the better and being tied down to someone else's rules about how that, that law firm operates doesn't allow them to be that altruistic. So they go off on their own and they try to start their own small practice. Well, it doesn't matter how long you've been working in a law firm, unless you're at a senior partner level, you don't know how to run a, a business. Well, you okay, don't, so you're just, you know, so you, you spend all this time in school to not know how to be an attorney. You spend all this time as an attorney to not know how to run a business and now you're running this law firm with overhead and employees and accounts receivable and court dates and uh, dates that you have to, paperwork has to be filed by and numbers and where, you know, what's the best place for us to have our office? Well, it's usually right in between where the courthouses are and where the big residential areas are for most kinds of laws. If you're, you know, personal injury attorney or uh, more you know, or something like that, you might want to be closer to the industrial area where a lot of car accidents might happen or, you know, there's a lot of garages. Most attorneys may not know some of this stuff right away. And so when you go into a business to work with them, they, and this goes to a lot of other businesses, they are so attached to the little bit that they do have knowledge on and the control that they have over that, that it's really hard to get them to loosen their grips. And so a lot of, like you were saying, a lot of these service-based businesses end up suffering because of that. One of the very first law firms that I had had contact with that was trying to decide 
you know, they it, it had been suggested to them that they need to get a coach. And so they found me and we were having those initial conversations to kind of figure out whether, you know, we could help each other and we even liked each other. And um, the, the, the owner of the firm uh, basically said, you know, I've been, I've been a lawyer for 20 years now. He goes, what can you teach me about being a better lawyer? And I basically said, nothing. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the law business nearly as intricately as you do. There's nothing I'm going to help you with that's going to make you a better attorney. I said, what I'm going to help you do is figure out how to run the business that you're now responsible for in a better, more profitable way. And that yeah, one conversation 100%. there changed him completely. He was one of the best clients I had in my early days because he realized I wasn't there to tell him what he already learned how to do for 20 years. I was there to help him figure out what he never learned how to do in that 20 years, which was run the business. He had now spent massive amounts of money and had taken on massive obligations to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not in the business to make him a better lawyer. Let him, you know, represent his clients to the best of his ability. And you're going to help him realize that by starting the law firm, you're no longer just uh, in charge of managing your clients. You're in charge of managing everything. And it's that everything else part that that's what you can help him with. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, since you probably work with uh, clients that have had other coaches in the past um, or have spoken to other coaches, is there anything specifically that kind of makes your blood boil that, you really think is scammy it's dishonest or if you're speaking to somebody and they said they had a, a certain kind of an experience with another coach right. that to you is a red flag that you would like people to be aware of okay oh this is a good one um <clears throat> there are many coaching institutes out there and i'm not going to mention any because i don't want to create problems for for <laughs> me or you um but there are many not notarized or noteworthy institutions out there that, that teach people how to be coaches, you know, and provide certifications and things of that nature. And I've looked them over, over the years, because I always want to kind of keep abreast of where the source of my future competition is coming from. And what I find is that many times coaching, while it's not suggested, it's very heavily linked to therapy. Okay. There's a certain psychological basis for coaching methodology that's got its roots in psychology. And if you look at it from that standpoint, coaches are simply kind of a medium. They're a transfer to help the client realize their own solutions because their solutions are in there somewhere. We're just, we're helping them get it out so that they can, they can own their own, their own solution and, and have their own success. And I buy into that totally in terms of helping clients realize what they really need to do. Because I can tell them probably within the first five minutes what they need to do. They're not going to buy into that. If they come up with the idea of what they need to do, they're going to take ownership for that. Now, where I kind of, where I kind of depart from all that is that in today's world, especially in the business world, there's a thing called ROI. And business owners, company executives, they all want to return on the investment they put in their coach, which means not only do they want somebody who's really steeped well in the coaching methodology, they also want somebody that has a background and a level of expertise 
in the area they're trying to go but haven't got yet. So they're looking for a kind of a trail guide in a way to help them figure out how to get through totally uncharted water. And I look, I, in, in the 15 years I've been doing this, I've worked with over 700 clients. So I kind of have enough of a pool that I can tell you that nine times out of 10, the reason that I do so well in this, in this business is because people look at my background and they say, I can learn from that guy. I can learn to do things that I've struggled with all my life and never been able to get my arms around because I've never had somebody that could actually show me how to not only understand the concept, but put it into practice in my daily life. So I blend those two together, kind of an advisement piece along with my coaching methodology. And what I say to people today is, if you're looking for somebody to help you become a better version of yourself, make sure you get somebody that has a discipline that is is in the same field as what you're trying to improve in. So if you're gonna go out and get a coach and, and your neighbor says, oh yeah, I know somebody down the street that could help you. And they're a relationship coach, they deal with marriages. Eh, don't do that. You're not going to get what you need in terms of where you're trying to go. You're not trying to improve your marriage, you're trying to improve your business. Hold on, there's a lot to unpack here. Wow, <laughs> yeah. that was that's a lot. Number one, I think um, if the main problem in your business is you and your business partner, your relationship falling apart, in that circumstance, a relationship coach may help. Um, But for the most part, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. What you were saying um, in the beginning about you going into a business and you can give them the answer in the first five minutes and they don't value it, you have to sort of guide them down a path where they come to the logical conclusion on their own. They were steering them towards that's called persuasion. That's what we do in sales and marketing all day. And it's never about telling you the right answer. It's about you determining for yourself that this must be the right answer. And that's kind of a, a tricky world to be in a lot of the times, especially, you know, unless you've been doing it for long enough that you can, really guide people without them seeing you got it. Um, but this is also, it involves a level of almost gamification where if you just hand somebody the right answer, the solution, they don't appreciate it. Right. If you watch them sort of struggle along and maybe they, they fall and bump their, their butt a couple of times, like when they're learning to ride a bicycle, but then they eventually get it. They appreciate it that much more. They had to work for it. And so your job a lot of times is to sit back and be their cheerleader, make sure that they're not doing anything that's going to make them do get more than just a scrape on their knee. But, you know, really you want to make sure that they don't see that you're the one keeping them on, keeping the, the, the extra wheels on to give them the tricycle until they're fully ready to go off on their own. Well, so there's a lot. All right. If you've been involved with law firms, then you probably will recognize this term when I throw it out. Have you heard of the Socratic method? Oh, of course. Okay. So if you take that concept and move it into the business world, into the coaching field, what I call it is I call it Socratic communication. And really all it is, is helping someone guide someone into an area that you know they'll benefit from once they get there and they realize where they are by asking them questions. 
you can you can actually you can you can move a conversation in a certain direction by asking questions and getting them to start realizing things that they don't necessarily think about and it's sure. it's incredibly powerful if you do it legitimately and you do it for their benefit not for yours sure and for any listener out there that may not be aware of it the socratic method method is a is basically it's a way for you to unlock certain critical thinking that people may not have. They might be too close to the situation. In this case, they're too close to the business. They can't see the forest through the trees. Right. And so you're going to be asking them questions where let's just say um, we're talking about them not focusing on growing their uh, email marketing, their, their email list for their business. And now they have a problem where sales are sporadic. Some some weeks, some months, they're high. Other times they're low, but they don't really have uh, an average number that they can count on. And when times are low, they don't have a system in place where they can boost those sales up. They, For whatever reason, they think email marketing is dead. So now you're going to ask them a series of questions that's going to hopefully get them to the point where they say, oh, you know what? That makes sense. We keep our email list. We grow it. We provide it with really good quality content. And now when we, we want or when we need to, we can present them with some kind of an offer. We do a sale. We do this kind of campaign or whatnot so that when uh, we need a boost in sales, we have it automatically. And when they come to that conclusion on their own, now all of a sudden they realize all the value of email marketing. You're not Wait, telling them that. No, I do the same thing when it comes to time management, because just about everybody that I work with at some point will tell me that they would like to be able to do certain things, but they literally don't have time because of all the other stuff that's on their plate, that's vying for their attention, that might be pulling them in one direction or another. And very early on, I used to tell people, if you show me what you're doing throughout the week for a solid month, I can cut 10 hours a month out of your schedule and you won't even know it's gone. But the problem with that was they didn't buy it because they weren't participating in it. So I had to change my overall game by asking them certain questions about what's their highest and best use of their time, their activity, what can they do that nobody else can do? Who do they have around them that they can train up to, to, uh, you know, to delegate things to? And at some point you start, people start to realize in their calendar from Monday through Friday, they waste an incredible amount of time. They're just not cognizant of it. Oh, hundred percent completely. That's, that's all about accountability. And if you go to really most health clubs or gyms where they have um, a lot of personal trainers, the majority of the people that are paying those personal trainers are not in terrible shape and are looking to, to get fit. There are, yes, there are definitely some of them, but the majority of those trainers clients are already in pretty decent shape. Some of them are in fantastic shape. Right. They're doing that because by paying this trainer, they, they're they accountable to them. They know that every Tuesday and every Thursday at 6 a.m., they've got to be there at that gym and bust their butt for an hour with this trainer. All that trainer at that point is really doing is, you know, telling them which machine to go on to next. They're telling them, you know, to remember to breathe out your nose into your mouth. Um and or into your nose, out to your mouth, whatever. And they're counting backwards from 10 to make sure they get all their, their reps in. That's really it. The person knows how to work out. So it's no different in many other areas of your life. You know what needs to be done. You know how to do it. 
but looking at your phone at uh, Facebook or Instagram or checking your email right. that distracts you. And now all of a sudden, when you designate an hour for this thing, you don't even realize it, but 45 minutes are just erased before you even realize it. Well, look, your, your training example is really good. And what, you know, I've used trainers in the past myself. And what I found that the greatest benefit I get from them is my ability to accelerate my progress because they show you methods and ways of doing things that get greater results. So you get rid of bad habits. And when I'm coaching executives, the first thing I start looking for is where are the blind spots? What are the things that they're assuming or avoiding or, or somehow treating in a manner that's not getting them the best return for their time and attention in that one individual area? And when you start getting them to realize that if they just make minor tweaks in how they communicate, how they interact, how they make decisions, all of these basic things that most executives are involved in on a daily basis, they start to realize that the return they're getting for the amount of time they're spending goes way up, which means they have to spend less time doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You can get your, your time back. There's um, a great book by an absolute brilliant um, businessman marketer named uh, Evan Pagan called wake up productive. And it's, I mean, it delivers just what it says. If you follow the steps, you're going to be productive right when you wake up and you're going to be able to finish your day sooner. You're going to be able to get back a lot of your free time. Right. The only problem is that in order for someone to go through that content and internalize it and put it to use and stick with it takes a lot, a level of accountability that most people don't have. Right. It's the same people that are able to, without even being told, they just naturally floss their teeth every single night before they go to bed. There's only a very small percentage of people that are disciplined enough to do that. Yes. Most of us will do it for the week or so before we, we have the dentist appointment and that's it. Um, so if you are one of the tiny percentile of people that can go through a, a digital course or a book or something and actually put it to use and actually use it, great, do it. But if not, if you're like the other 95% of people out there, then somebody, uh, an executive coach like Steve Smith here, He's the right person for you because he's going to almost force you to be accountable. Um, I don't know how your business runs, but I know a lot of coaches and the most successful ones are the ones that, that get the most out of the, the clients that they work with. You meet them, you talk through whatever you need to talk through, you figure out the next steps, you give them sort of a three to five plan action step, and there it's up to them to complete it before the next time you meet. And if not, you're going to let them know it. You're going to let them hear about it. And if so, and I, if they do, yeah, then- I, I do things just a, a little bit different. I mean, I follow the, James, the same idea of getting them to adopt tasks and certain things they're going to work on, because if you don't apply what you've agreed to do, then, then no development takes place. But what I found is many times, if I can get people to own the reason why they're going to spend time doing something that's completely different than what they've done, which means there's going to be a little fear involved in what if I don't do this right? I have to get them to, to see what the outcome looks like and how much better their role in that company is going to be if they can just make an effort to try to get there on their own. And what you find is a lot of times the reason people get stuck in bad behaviors 
or other things that just kind of bog them down is because they've lost sight of anything better. They've accepted mediocrity, like this is all it's ever gonna be. And breaking that and getting them to realize that very, very small changes can have massive change in their outcome if they're just willing to kind of adopt a vision. I'll give you an example. I worked with an attorney two years ago, smart lady. I mean, she was really, really good at her craft. She had trouble holding on to clients because she had certain personality quirks that she just, she knew she had them. She couldn't get rid of them. And one of them was she, she had a foul mouth. She couldn't get through a meeting without just spewing stuff left and right that people would just cringe at. One of the things that we did, or that I did with her, is I helped her create a code of conduct. I told her, I said, what you need is six or eight bullet points of things that you're going to commit to not doing anymore, or things you're going to commit to doing, which are going to overwrite the bad habits. And once you get these little things down, put it on a little card you can keep in your pocket or your purse or wherever you want to hold on to it, your job every day is to read that card three times. Because the more you can seed your brain with things that you're, you're telling it you're now going to start doing, the easier it is for you to be able to just automatically start doing those routinely. And she spent two months on this thing. And it was amazing how it changed how she showed up, how she interacted, the things that she didn't do, which were kind of offending people and causing them to walk out of the office. It was a, it was an, it was a transformation for her. But what it started with was her setting a standard a higher standard that she was going to aspire to and she wasn't going to give up until she got there. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember as a kid to stop me from biting my nails, my mom used to have a, a rubber band around my wrist and every time I bite my nails, I had to snap it. Oh, it's the same oh, idea. <laughs> it's a rubber band. It stings. Yeah, for sure. Right. Um, you know, and you, you're definitely holding yourself accountable to it. So you got to make sure you, you're always snapping and whenever you do that, but it's the same sort of thing. That was a little bit of negative reinforcement. That's, you know, but that works. On aware, it, it calls, it calls into attention what you're doing that you're trying to change. Oh, absolutely. And after you've snapped it a couple of times and your wrist is, is red and sore the fourth or fifth time you snap it. Now it's, it goes from a little annoyance and now that really hurts. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a similar idea though. You know, what you do is you had to read a postcard or there was no real punishment for it, but it's the similar idea of you're going to make somebody be aware of what they're doing wrong and find a way to snap them out of that. Right. Yes. All right, Steve. Um, if somebody wanted to learn more about you, your business, how to get in touch with you or follow you, what's the best ways for them to do that? My suggestion would be go to my website first, which is growthsourcecoaching.com. Everything you could ever want to know about me is on that. I have videos on there. I talk about some of my practices, some of my philosophies on business and on being a great professional in business. Uh, I've got a lot of articles there. I've written. I've got videos there that what I've, I've taken from other people who I think just do it much better than I can. So my site is really set up as a massive repository of things you can learn from. And if you want to go try them on your own, great. Uh, but if, if you, you decide that, you know, one of those programs, either executive, kind of an executive tune-up program or something that's more general business is to your liking, you can fill out this little block uh, box there and it sends me an email and I reach out to you and we have a chat. Um, you can also hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, if you're, 
if you're there and uh, you're a legitimate business person, I almost always connect. Um, the, the people that I stay away from are the ones, the appointment setters and the other people. I mean, there's millions of those out there and they're hitting me. Oh God, yeah. Meeting. So I don't, I don't uh, accept any of those. But if you've got a legitimate business role in a company, I'm, I'm always accepting those folks. But start with the website because you'll, you'll get an appreciation. In fact, my, uh, uh, my, my podcast is also on there and uh, we're inching up on about 100 episodes now. So uh, there's a lot of really great content in that too. So if you like podcasts, you can kind of skim around there and see what you find. Oh, fantastic. So it's growthsourcecoaching.com. Right. Growthsourcecoaching.com. Steve Smith from growthsourcecoaching.com. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for your time. It was great getting to chat with you. Yeah, Josh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Great. And for everybody else, this has been Josh Rosenberg with the Business Girls Podcast. I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Business Gorillas Podcast. If you're a highly successful entrepreneur and want to be a guest, go to businessgorillaspodcast.com and fill out the form. Remember to share us on social media. Click the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star rating and review if you got anything out of the show. Feel free to connect with us on social media. If you're looking to connect with world-class top marketers and some of the most experienced fractional chief marketing officers in the world today, head on over to verygoodmarketingconsultants.com. On behalf of your host, Josh Rosenberg, thank you for listening to the Business Gorillas Podcast. 